This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic. COPD is a common disease state encountered in the outpatient primary care practice. It can result in frequent emergency room visits and recurrent hospitalizations. With us today is Dr. Louis Wasilius, a pulmonologist at Mayo Clinic, and our topic for today is an update in the evaluation and management of COPD. Welcome, Dr. Wasilius. Dr. Wasilius, can you review the various types of COPD? Sure. Um, the, the different types or phenotypes of, of COPD would include what we've classically called you know, chronic bronchitis or chronic obstructive bronchitis, which is characterized by sputum production, persistent sputum production. Then there's the uh, emphysema phenotype of, of, as, of a COPD, uh, which is more characterized by lung destruction um, or alveolar destruction. Uh, then you can have... Um, a phenotype which is eosinophilic COPD, which is characterized more by elevated eosinophil counts either in the blood or increased airway eosinophils. Um, there's a subtype of frequent exacerbator of COPD. Um, patients who may even have fairly mild or moderate COPD but frequently exacerbate. Um, and then finally, there's a subgroup, a little more controversial subgroup of COPD asthma overlap or asthma COPD overlap. Uh, where patients may have features of both. Classically, the two major types that we see are chronic bronchitis Mm -hmm. and emphysema. Can you contrast the differences between those two conditions? Sure. Um, Well, there's differences in, um, certainly in histology or pathology of the lungs. The patients that have uh, COPD that's due to chronic bronchitis have a more inflammatory response in the airways. they uh, produce more mucus. They're often chronic uh, uh, sputum producers. Um, it's associated often with more frequent airway infections just due to the excess mucus in the airways. And um, it's a group of patients that classically was called chronic um, or blue bloaters because they often ended up in end stage more with some CO2 retention and cyanosis and so forth. The emphysema patient has less inflammation in the airway. Uh, may have less frequent airway infections, but often is more dyspneic early in the disease, have a more work of breathing because of their hyperinflation. And so they often are more symptomatic early in the disease, uh, but they maintain their uh, gas exchange better, so they're often, they were classified in the past as pink puffers. Um, they respond a little less to anti-inflammatory therapies and more to just pure bronchodilation therapies. Okay. Why is COPD such a costly disease? Well, it's costly in a number of ways. One, um, one of the patients, unfortunately, can have frequent exacerbations, particularly as the disease progresses. And these exacerbations um, result in uh, frequent ER visits and frequent hospitalizations. They also are expensive in the terms of frequently being unable to work or disabled and, and for those reasons. So Frequent office visits, there's a fairly high medical utilization rate in these patients. They uh, also have a lot of comorbidities often. You know, again, cigarette smoking that causes COPD also is associated with coronary artery disease. So these patients often have 
that comorbidity or heart failure comorbidity. So there often is a lot of comorbidity in these patients, and they're not able to be very active, so there are other risk factors there that come up when you're not very active. You mentioned smoking. Is smoking the major risk factor for the development of COPD? It is the major risk factor, certainly by far in uh, developed countries. We know that it's not the only risk factor. Individuals who work in dusty environments, you know, farming, mining, construction, that is an additional risk factor and plays some role. And we're learning more that there may be some hereditary factors also that play a role in who gets COPD and who doesn't. Because not all smokers get COPD. They may get heart disease or lung cancer, but they don't necessarily all get COPD. Mm -hmm. Okay. When we're evaluating patients for suspected COPD, what tests should we order? And I know traditionally we get spirometry, but are there other things that we should consider ordering? Well, a spirometry with bronchodilator is, is always a good first step, you know, and, and that will oftentimes give you a lot of information fairly inexpensively, too. It's a relatively easy test to do. It's not a perfect test because um, patients can have a lot of symptoms related to COPD, and that could be because it's predominantly emphysema, and it may, may or may not affect the uh, spirometry as much as, somebody, say, somebody who has chronic bronchitis. So if you are evaluating the patient and they have quite a bit of symptoms, you may benefit from having full lung functions, which includes uh, lung volumes and diffusing capacity. And I think in selected patients, um, you know, a CT scan can give you additional information. Not that everybody has to have a CT scan, but uh, in selected patients, it can tell you quite a bit about the extent of emphysema, where it's located, and also rule out you know, other factors that may be going on. Bronchiectasis is not uncommon in COPD patients, for example. Are blood eosinophils of any value? You know, recent studies have, have highlighted that, that uh, it can have an um, important role in guiding your therapy. Um, it's been shown that patients who have higher eosinophil counts in their blood, and that in some studies is uh, counts greater than 300 or more than 2% eosinophils in some other studies, those patients are likely to have frequent exacerbations, and they're also a group that's going to respond better to inhaled corticosteroids. So that may be a group where you're going to lean more towards a therapy, say, of a long-acting beta agonist with an inhaled corticosteroid. How do we determine the severity of patients who have COPD? Well, severity has classically been determined by their FEV1, by their spirometry with looking at their uh, FEV1 percent predicted. Um, the classic definition of COPD is somebody who has a post-bronchodilator FEV1 FEC ratio of less than 0.7 or 70 percent. And then mild uh, disease would be if the FEV1 is still over 80 percent, and then moderate disease is 50 to, to 80. Uh, severe would be 30 to 50, and then very severe is less than, less than uh, 30. But um, you know, that gives you a kind of a broad category, but other factors in terms of symptoms and how frequent the exacerbations are occurring is also important in assessing how severe someone's COPD is. So we have our patient, we've evaluated them, we've diagnosed COPD. What are the goals of treatment for this patient? Well, uh, the, you know, obviously the patient is, is very interested in improving symptoms usually. I mean, they're symptomatic, their life is altered, they're not able to get through daily activities without dyspnea. So obviously the patient and, and we as our physicians want to reduce their symptoms. But in addition, you know, we'd like to um, reduce their exacerbations, which reduces 
the overall medical costs by keeping them out of the hospital and keeping them out of the emergency rooms. Um, it may also benefit the course of their disease to reduce exacerbations. And sometimes patients, you have to kind of educate them on that particular point. Um, you know, ideally, we'd like to slow the decline of lung function that occurs in COPD. And we've had some studies that suggest we might be able to do that with certain therapies, at least to a mild extent. Um, and then, um, you know, in some of the newer therapies, we're hoping that, um, uh, for example, the new endobronchial valve therapy that's available in um, patients with emphysema, we hope we can improve lung function a little bit and make people a little more functional. How do we initiate treatment? We've got a patient, new diagnosis. What do we start for treatment in this individual? Well, the um, current gold guidelines um, that have been developed and somewhat revised recently um, suggest that you typically start in COPD patients with a long-acting bronchodilator. That could be either a beta agonist or an anticholinergic drug. Um, but uh, it's different than the approach to patients with asthma. So it does require you to, to the physician or the provider to be kind of cognizant that this is not an asthma patient. And obviously some asthma patients have been smokers, so you have to kind of you know, not jump to that conclusion always just because somebody has a smoking history. But if it doesn't have features of asthma, uh, meaning the symptoms don't vary tremendously from time to time and, um, you know, they're not specific triggers of, of their symptoms, uh, they don't have a lot of allergy issues that are also there, you think pretty confidently it's COPD, then, then a long-acting bronchodilator is clearly the, the recommended first choice. Does the treatment of chronic bronchitis differ significantly from that of emphysema? At least initially, no. You know, they're, 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 you, you still begin in both groups with a long-acting bronchodilator. Um, you know, in chronic bronchitics, there is a more a likelihood of more frequent exacerbations, and in patients who have frequent exacerbations, again, that's two or more in a year particularly if there's significant exacerbations requiring corticosteroids and, and or hospital or ER visit, that group you might think of adding an inhaled corticosteroid. But in, typically the initial therapy is the same in both groups. Are there treatments available that have been shown to prevent exacerbations? Yes, the treatments that we use, um, when we look specifically at an endpoint of not just lung function, but frequency of exacerbations, the long-acting bronchodilators, uh, particularly the anticholinergics uh, drugs, do reduce exacerbations. Inhaled corticosteroids reduce exacerbations. And then there are, uh, there's an agent, reflumolast, which is an oral agent, which is available uh, specifically for reducing exacerbations in patients who um, have not been controlled with aggressive triple therapy. Uh, the, that group, particularly chronic bronchitic patient, would be one you would consider perhaps reflumolast. And then long-acting macrolide therapy has also been shown to, shown to reduce exacerbations. Earlier you mentioned eosinophils. Mm -hmm. How do eosinophils relate to exacerbations? Is there some relationship that we might be able to use there? Yeah, that's uh, it's a good point, and it's one which we've come to appreciate more recently. Um, you know, in chronic uh, COPD, the inflammation, particularly you see in the airways of patients with chronic bronchitis, tends to be neutrophil-mediated, or there may be some lymphocyte uh, uh, involvement also. But in exacerbations, 
um, it's clear that there is often uh, accumulation of eosinophils in the airway. So uh, uh, steroid therapy is not particularly effective at reducing neutrophil counts, but it is quite effective in reducing eosinophil uh, inflammation, eosinophilic inflammation. So steroid therapy has always been a, a standard of care for exacerbations of COPD, but not in chronic therapy. And even therapy that's directed specifically at eosinophils like the anti-IL-5 therapy, although it's not clinically um, something we use, but in trials, just to assess that has shown that that particular therapy reduces exacerbations. You mentioned macrolides and patients with chronic bronchitis get recurrent infections. What's the role of antibiotics in therapy for COPD? Yeah, it's, um, it's a good question because it's, it's um, that's often a challenging question of when do you use antibiotics in patients who are having an exacerbation. And, um, you know, not all exacerbations are due to infections, and many of those infections that do trigger exacerbations are viral. But in patients who are producing, you know, quite a bit more sputum than usual, particularly if the sputum has become darker, uh, and, and, uh, and, and the third question is always is the symptom, are their symptoms significantly different? In those patients, you know, an antibiotic is appropriate. Probably a relatively short course, five days, is adequate rather than a long course in most of those patients. Um, so then the question comes, though, in some patients, would long, act or long courses of antibiotics um, be prophylactic? And uh, in pa some patients who have frequent exacerbations, in spite of optimizing all the therapy that we, other therapies we have, um, it has been shown that a, that a macrolide, and specifically the, the primary study is with azithromycin, 250 milligrams daily, that does reduce exacerbations. Um, that can be associated with, you know, some GI side effects or potentially effects on hearing or um, and certainly you have to check the QT interval and the EKG. But, um, but that is an option in patients that just continue to have exacerbations. When is oxygen therapy indicated? Uh, you know, some interesting recent studies have been done on that to, to look at the question of, you know, does oxygen therapy alter uh, mortality in patients with COPD and some degree of hypoxemia? And certainly in patients who have resting hypoxemia, meaning saturations less than 89%, so they're 88% or lower, uh, their uh, oxygen therapy will improve uh, longevity, that it has a reduced mortality. Um, in patients who, who desaturate just with exercise or uh, only at night, um, oxygen therapy can improve quality of life, but it, it ne doesn't necessarily prolong or uh, reduce their mortality. But quality of life is important, uh, and maintaining ability to exercise during the day is probably a very important outcome also. So oftentimes we will use oxygen in patients even though their desaturation is only at night when they're asleep or with exercise. I think one important role for the primary care provider, uh, since a lot of these patients see us instead of a specialist, is making sure their immunizations are mm -hmm. up to date, both pneumonia vaccines, the annual influenza vaccine. Uh, is that correct? That would be correct. Yeah, it's a very important factor. And obviously, then in a few patients, you know, then discussions on smoking cessation, particularly in patients who have exactly. more early disease, right. you know, is a very uh, critical role that the primary care providers yeah. provide. Um, how about pulmonary rehabilitation? Has that been shown to be effective? It is. It is very effective in terms of the outcome of quality of life. You know, it um, 
it is effective. There's some, you know, some somewhat conflicting data in terms of exacerbations um, and keeping people out of the hospital. Or some, it's not totally clear that that uh, is achieved, but certainly the quality of life, uh, independence, you know, being able to maintain independence, uh, six-minute walk, those type of outcomes are all clearly benefited by pulmonary rehabilitation. So, um, you know, I think anybody who's, any, any patient who's getting significant COPD limitations, uh, pulmonary rehab is, is something that should be strongly considered. Mm -hmm. In the past, I would see an occasional patient who underwent surgical lung, lung reduction. I haven't seen that for a while. Is that procedure still done? It is still done, but I think the, the problem has been that um, uh, fewer surgeons are, are doing it. You know, I think it's, it's not a very frequently done uh, procedure. I think, in the, I, I forget the exact year, but recently there were, I think, only five or 600 done in the United States over the entire year. So it's infrequently done, so surgeons don't feel as confident, maybe, in terms of doing it regularly. And I think the, the new kit on the block, the endobronchial valve therapy that's being, um, that was just recently approved, is probably going to reduce those numbers even more. Finally, one last question. Is COPD a risk factor for lung cancer? It is. Um, you know, obviously, there's a common um, exposure history here, you know, in terms of cigarette smoking. But if you take a look at cigarette smokers who do or don't have COPD, those who have COPD have a higher risk of developing uh, lung cancer. And it's thought that maybe there's some similar pathogenic mechanisms that lead to both COPD and vulnerability to lung cancer. Are there recommendations that we should be doing lung cancer surveillance on COPD patients? There's nothing right at this point, although it's been discussed, in terms of selecting out COPD patients. The, the guidelines for lung cancer screening still are based on age, uh, 55, smoking history of more than 30 pack years, and having quit within the last 15 years. So it's still based just on smoking history, but it's clear that if you focus in on those patients with COPD, you, you have a higher yield rate of the screening. So I think it might be a situation where you, if you had a patient with COPD and that qualified for other reasons, I might push even a little bit harder to get them to think about lung mm -hmm. cancer screening. Right. Dr. Wasilius, thank you so much uh, for sharing your knowledge with us. Great interview. Oh, thanks very much. I enjoyed it. Thank you for your kind emails and topic suggestions. Each and every comment is important to us. We invite you to share your thoughts at cme at mayo.edu. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week. Music